Hi, we're Visible, the wireless company with nothing to hide. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not into you. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Let me just look at the, uh, the picture in here. I've got, I thought I had the picture of them too. Hold on. Jane Mayer is the chief Washington correspondent for The New Yorker. Um, and she's flipping through her book for an old photograph. Here he is, John M. Olin. <laughs> kind of central casting plutocrat. We're looking he, at a guy who's wearing a blazer and a pocket, uh, square, pocket square to go out on a hunt with his dogs. Um, his, his dogs were beautiful, I have to say. He really did have gorgeous-looking <laughs> Labradors. We can't fault him for that. No. But John Olin was more than a stuffy guy with some good dogs. He was also one of the most influential conservative philanthropists of the 20th century. In Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, she does a deep dig into that influence. He is the founder of the Olin Foundation, and he is the inheritor of the Olin Company, which his father started. The Olin Company made all kinds of things, from mining explosives to munitions to chemicals. John M. Olin inherited the company from his dad, and he was a stickler for hard work. According to one biographer, he didn't really believe in days off. And that hard work mindset translated into some pretty conservative values. John M. Olin was very anti-big government, but the truth about the Olin business was that it exploded thanks to the government, first in World War I in the defense industry, and then even more so in World War II. The Olin Company became one of the biggest private companies in America during that period. And just like Andrew Carnegie in our last episode, John Olin poured the money his family made with government help into some very questionable philanthropy. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect, a show about trying to do good. I'm Dylan Matthews. This season, we're looking at big philanthropists and how their money shapes the world around them, without anyone else having a vote. The Olin Foundation has profoundly changed American society. We'll tell you how it has changed our courts, how it's changed our universities, and how it's changed the conversations we have about conservative ideas. But to understand why Olin first decided to get political with his philanthropy, we need to go back to the 1970s. As our good friends in Jefferson Airplane explain, this was not a great time for stodgy capitalists in hunting suits. All your private property is target for your enemy. Olin was upset about this cultural shift, and he was angry about mounting regulation of capitalists like himself. I worked hard to try to understand his mindset, and a lot of it has to be speculative. But what I noticed was that the direction of his philanthropy changed as his own company became a target 
of the new, more militant environmental movement. There was a lot to target. For example, in a tiny Appalachian town called Saltville, the Olin Company had a chemical-making plant. That was pouring like 100 pounds of mercury a day into the drinking water, um, right into the streams. Suddenly, people began to realize that mercury was causing horrendous birth defects. And there were these pictures in the New York Times of a particular mercury spill in Japan that showed these babies just horribly deformed. People in Saltville started asking questions. What is the mercury doing to us? And the environmental movement was just beginning to take off and take note of this sort of thing. And it cracked down on the Olin Foundation there. There were new regulations, and before long, the company was being targeted with hundreds of millions of dollars of cleanup costs. Olin was seeing these regulations and expenses piling up on the one side. And then on the other side, he was seeing a rise of political correctness. He was seeing student protests at his alma mater, Cornell, and radical cultural changes on and off campus. And he finally said, Enough is enough. And it's at that point that you see the John M. Olin Foundation change from kind of traditional giving, you know, things like hospitals, the kinds of things that wealthy families in America had long given to that were not particularly political. To something very political. If the country was leaning left, Olin wanted to tilt it right again. He wants to build a counterintelligentsia in American academia and take back the colleges from the leftists and hopefully train up a new generation of conservative students. Luckily, I was able to interview people who were involved in this process. There's a very thoughtful man named um, James Pearson, who I talked to, who also worked for the Olin Foundation. All right, fire away. See if I can help you. We also talked to James Pearson. He told us that back in 1981, he was working as an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He was seeing the same leftward shift in academia. And his friend, William Crystal, now a really famous conservative activist, told him he should check out this place called the Olin Foundation. Uh, one thing led to another. I went up and talked to them, and they hired me at the Olin Foundation in 1981. 1981 was also the year that Ronald Reagan took office. So it was a great time to be a conservative in politics. In the intellectual world, not so much. You know, at the time we came into this, there wasn't much going on at all. The conservative world was tiny. But the Olin Foundation staff had tens of millions of dollars to make that world grow. You know, we didn't know where we were going. It was very experimental. When we saw a good program, we put some money behind it. There's no overall plan, really. The Olin Foundation basically planted a bunch of tiny political seeds, watered them periodically, and watched to see if any of them would sprout. Looking back in hindsight, it's pretty clear that some of those seeds not only sprouted, they grew into really powerful trees. We're going to look at five of those seeds turned trees today. The first, conservative media. In the 70s, there were some conservative magazines, but they weren't widely read. In other words, we were just talking to the choir. So the Olin Foundation said, We need to fund grants, grants, grants for books, books, books. One of those was Charles Murray's book about welfare. They funded, you know what they funded? The New Criterion 
The American Spectator is another magazine. They funded Firing Line. Funding for this Firing Line debate is made possible by a major grant from the John M. Olin Foundation. Which was kind of a debate program. Our topic tonight is resolved. The ACLU is full of baloney. Where you had William F. Buckley, who was spectacularly articulate. Well, the reason why it has got the reputation of an unfocused bunch of lefties is that it has earned that reputation. And he would come out there and just go to war with any liberal on television. The principal threat to freedom in America is crime. And the ACLU comes up with the attempted ban on capital punishment. The overweening social problem in America is the loss of moral coordinates, and the ACLU tries to clamp down on religion wherever it shows its public face. The need for civilized restraints is met... And so it brought these conservative arguments to the entire country through their television sets. Firing Line was on PBS for nearly 30 years, and for a lot of that time, it was paid for by the Olin Foundation. And the other grants, grants, grants for books, books, books paid off too. At the American Spectator's peak, it was selling hundreds of thousands of copies an issue. In Charles Murray's book about welfare, in the 90s, it helped inspire one of the biggest welfare reform laws in decades. Conservative media was no longer dead. And while the Olin Foundation wasn't the only force behind its wild growth, they definitely helped cultivate it. Which brings us to the second seed that the Olin Foundation tended to, conservatism on campus. One of the other things they began to do was pour money into college publications that were conservative. The major one was the Dartmouth Review. It was edited and run by a number of people who later became very important voices of the conservative movement. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people. You got Laura Ingram writing in it, who is now a Fox host. Uh, you have D'Souza. Filmmaker, political commentator, author Dinesh D'Souza's at our desk discussing his book, The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. And I want to get to the book in just a minute, but first, um, I, want to get your I would like to hear more about the time you called Dinesh D'Souza a dick. That is my very sophisticated colleague, Ezra Klein, talking a few years ago to Tim Geithner, who was the Treasury Secretary for much of Obama's presidency. And Ezra's asking about one of the Dartmouth Review's worst moments. It was a time when there was the early stage of the conservative movement among college campuses, and Dartmouth was one of the epicenters of that movement. And conservative students at that point started a newspaper called the Dartmouth Review, and they published a confidential list of members of the Lesbian Gay Student Alliance, and including on this little bunch of people who hadn't come out to their friends or their, or their parents. And it was devastating to them. I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire, where Dartmouth is. The Review's activities are legendary there. While running the Dartmouth Review, D'Souza also published an interview with a Ku Klux Klan leader next to an edited photo of a black student getting lynched on campus. He ran an anti-affirmative action article written entirely in abonics. I'm not even comfortable reading the headline. What it just looked like was, wow, students are becoming conservative. They're writing these treatises and running these publications. And you would not have known, unless you looked really carefully, that there was a stream of funding coming from a handful of very conservative corporate donors who were deliberately trying to change the politics and public opinion in America. This was one of the Olin Foundation's more moderate successes. Undergrads still lean liberal overall, 
But the third seed Olin watered took deep root on law school campuses and grew into an established branch of the law. It started as part of a broader Olin push to make law schools more conservative. What they realized was they could easily build up their own academic institutions on the right, but those wouldn't have any power or standing because they'd be seen as fringe. And if they wanted to really have influence, they had to take over the prestige institutions. Which is harder than it sounds. You can't just do it frontally because the academics will resent it and resist it. So they have to be a little more sneaky than that. The Olin Foundation would find faculty members who were conservative, and then they'd build up a center for them at their school. They were very careful, though, in how they described these programs. They realized that if we said, this is the center to prove that Marxism is a lie, that a university wasn't going to take their money. So instead, they came up with these sort of anodyne, cryptic titles for their programs, things like the Madison Center for Freedom. The super successful third seat that Olin watered was one of these powerful programs with a cryptic title, Law and Economics. I mean, listen to the title of that, Law and Economics. Doesn't that sound bland? Basically, the idea was that lawyers and judges should be considering economics and making their decisions. And like, how could you be against either law or economics or any combination of them? It just sounds good. But let's say your company is polluting a lot. And let's say the people who are affected by your pollution take you to court. Before law and economics, the idea was if you injured somebody with your pollution, you absolutely had to pay for it. After law and economics... That wasn't so obvious. You had to say, what are the economic impacts of punishing a company for polluting? You know, how much is it going to cost the company? Maybe you shouldn't punish a company for filling a town's river with mercury because they'd close the plant and people in the town would lose jobs. And maybe you had to be more careful before you said something was a monopoly in an antitrust case because then the companies involved couldn't grow and employ people and make money. And maybe if you gave harsher prison sentences in criminal cases, you'd create more of a disincentive for crime. So it had a conservatizing influence, and that's basically what it was about. But it sounded very bland. And so if if it has this conservatizing influence, how do you get places like Harvard and Yale and Chicago on board with this? What, What makes this attractive to these big institutions? Well, what happened, particularly the way it worked its way into Harvard, was kind of an interesting story to me. So at some point in the early 1980s, let's say 1985. It was, in fact, 1985. There was a conflict at Harvard University Law School. Harvard was a hotbed of leftist new thinking about the law. There was a group of what they call critical legal theorists. Radical lefty professors there at the law school who began to teach the kids that they should turn against corporate law. They were encouraging the lawyers that they were training to go down to the high-level law firms and sabotage the law firms in order to undermine the free market or capitalist system. So that was written up in the New Yorker magazine at some point in the middle 1980s. And some of the old funders and graduates of Harvard Law School were incensed. Of course, a school like Harvard Law, they want to place their top graduates in the big law firms. That's what they exist for. The dean was concerned about the reputation. 
that Harvard Law School was beginning to get as a result of this. And at that point, the Olin Foundation struck. And the dean of the Harvard Law School got in contact with one of our trustees and asked if we could, would support a program which took a different point of view toward this. They saw it was their moment to say, hey, we've got plenty of money, and we can give you a program that will give another point of view. It won't all be these lefty professors. We've got some ideas about how you can teach law and economics. This would be a law and economics program at Harvard. That's how they got through that door. And we did fund that quite generously. And as goes Harvard Law, so goes everywhere else. The rest of the campuses said, well, if Harvard's doing it, we should do it too. Pretty soon we heard from some people at Yale Law School, uh, which we funded. And very soon we heard from Stanford Law School, which we funded. And very soon we heard from Columbia, which we funded. Within a few years, the Olin Foundation was funding law and economics programs at most of the top law schools in the country. Uh, I think we did have an idea at the time that whatever the top schools did, the lower level schools would emulate. It would have a domino effect. And that's how it all began. Earlier, Jane Mayer used the word sneaky, which sounds not great. As though we're saying that the Olin Foundation tricked law schools into adopting all this. They didn't trick anyone, but they definitely had their own agenda. There's another great book about the Olin Foundation by a political scientist named Steve Tellis. Tellis asked James Pearson about all of this. And Pearson gave him an amazing quote that I read back to him in our interview. Give me a second to read it. Um, If you said to a dean that you wanted to fund conservative constitutional law, he would reject the idea out of hand. But if you said you wanted to support law and economics, he would be much more open to the idea. Law and economics is neutral, but it has a philosophical thrust in the direction of free markets and limited government. It seems neutral, but it in fact isn't. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, (laughs) I think that, I think here would be the point. We never tried to manipulate the universities and tell them they had to do something that we wanted them to do. They always came to us. Uh, We understood, and I understood, because I'd been an academic, that you can't tell universities and professors what to do. Uh, That's impossible. Olin Foundation money, however, definitely changed the schools. Nowadays, law and economics is a common field of law. All the major law schools have a couple people doing it, and they have journals in it, and they do research in it. All these students going to law and economics classes, they become lawyers and judges and law professors. And they take with them this basic idea that you really need to crunch the numbers when you're making decisions. You have to make sure that you're not costing a company too much or causing too much job loss when you're enforcing a regulation. And then the other idea they had that was brilliant was why just expose students to this ideology? Why not expose judges to it? Judges who are already on the courts. We're going to take a quick break, but then The last two seeds planted by the Olin Foundation. Seeds that have reshaped how judges judge and who gets to be a judge at all.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, Trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome back to Future Perfect. Before the break, the Olin Foundation took a seed of a legal discipline, law and economics, and helped it spread through reputable law schools across the country. But they also watered a different law and economics seed, a series of programs for judges. Kind of like a little summer school. And it was really, it was really fun. These summer school-like programs were called Manny Seminars named after this guy, Henry Manny, who organized them. And they were held in these snazzy tropical resorts. You'd go to classes in the morning where you'd be exposed to law and economics and kind of basic conservative and libertarian theories of the law. But then in the afternoon... In the afternoon, everybody would swim and they'd golf and they'd boat and play tennis. And then they'd have sort of these lovely dinners together. And it was all free for the judges. There was a seminar all about the economics of wine with wine tasting. And there's an incredible photo of Milton Friedman, the super libertarian economist, giving his own lecture. He's in a Hawaiian shirt in front of a blackboard with a smile on his face and sunglasses on. It looks like a blast. And I think the camaraderie was probably wonderful for the judges. And, and you know, the, just that alone was a big draw. There was a judge in my family, so I know a little bit about it. And he described, it's a lonely business. You're by yourself having to make really difficult decisions. So these judges are at these resorts, palling around, drinking wine, and learning some pretty wild things. Again, this was law and economics. So they were being asked to think hard about economics and how it might apply to the law. Take our pollution example again. Law and economics suggests that you should consider the cost for the company if you make them clean up their act. But one economist in these seminars took things further. He asked judges to think about all the air pollution in Los Angeles, a serious problem back in the day. 
The downtown Los Angeles skyline was shrouded in smog again today. Commuters driving into the city saw it slowly emerge from a dense gray haze. Millions of people are coughing and wheezing their way through the worst October smog attack in almost a decade. Not great. But The Economist said, and this is read from a quote, If you give me a capsule that will magically clean all the air in Los Angeles, beg me to crush it. I will not crush the capsule. Because if I do, poor blacks will have to pay $20 or more for land rental. And the black and Watts, already used to living with bad air, loses his discount for doing that. He's basically arguing that because black people have adapted to the crappy air of Los Angeles, it's more important to keep the air bad so that rents stay low than to give them clean air. And the judges weren't just learning about pollution. I remember Henry Manny would give his lecture on the idea that there is no such thing as insider trading and they should eliminate all the laws on insider trading. By the year 2000, something like 60% of the federal judges had attended these seminars, which is astounding. That includes judges who later ended up on the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg attended and apparently enjoyed herself a lot. She said, quote, The instruction was far more intense than the Florida sun. And we have good reason to think that this training mattered. A recent paper by economists Elliot Ash, Daniel Chen, and Suresh Naidu found that judges who went to Manny seminars were likelier to rule against the EPA, against labor unions, and for businesses. The seminars taught that long sentences can deter crime. So judges who took the seminars imposed longer sentences. My favorite finding is that judges who took classes with Milton Friedman gave lower sentences for drug crimes because Friedman wanted to legalize drugs. The paper is called Ideas Have Consequences. And the Olin Foundation's history is proof they really do. Olin was hugely important in law and economics. It's amazing how successful they were. I think they got one of the biggest payoffs for any kind of investment in conservative philanthropy anywhere. But there was one more seed that the Olin Foundation watered. One that arguably had an even bigger impact on the courts than the Manny Seminars. The Federalist Society. The Federalist Society. They came to us very early in 1982. There were a bunch of students, law students, and they'd had a conference at Yale, and they wanted to continue it. These conservative students wanted to set up a national office to create a large organization. I remember being skeptical of that. Why do you want to create a national office? Uh, you're a student group in some law schools. But he figured, eh, why not? Give them some money. And, well, we know what's happened to the Federalist Society over the last 35 years. Just in case you don't, it's since become one of the most influential legal networks in the country, with 200 law school chapters and tens of thousands of members. Before long, it had grown into kind of a credentialing process where if you were a member of the Federalist Society, you had a good chance of getting a clerkship with a conservative judge because it kind of it denoted that you were part of this cadre. And so other conservatives flocked to it on campus, and it really helped people get ahead. The Federalist Society invites promising young law students to informal events like barbecues where they can network. 
Justice Clarence Thomas attended at least one of these networking barbecues, for example, wearing a Hawaiian shirt and chatting people up. The Federalist Society, which the New Yorker magazine called the conservative pipeline to the Supreme Court. It's the LinkedIn for conservative lawyers. I mean, I think at this point, the Federalist Society, which began with funding by the Olin Foundation, has succeeded way beyond the wildest dreams of John M. Olin. He could never have imagined how important it's become. The Federalist Society provided a shortlist of potential Supreme Court justices to President Trump. President Trump basically delegated the role of picking Supreme Court justices to the head of the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo. Seen by many conservatives as President Trump's Supreme Court whisperer. And Trump also had the Federalist Society draw up lists of judges in the lower courts. And so they've really become kind of the unofficial (laughs) pickers of America's justices in the Trump era. Right now on the Supreme Court, there are five justices with deep connections to the Federalist Society. John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh. And there are many more Federalist Society judges in lower courts across the country. I've come to think that it's a perversion of philanthropy to turn it into an extension of politics. I mean, Face it, what you've got here are a handful of the richest people in the world who are exerting outsized pressure on American politics simply because they have the extra money to do it. They get big tax deductions to build up foundations they control. And there's no transparency, there's no accountability, and it's just on the face of it an anti-democratic force. I wasn't particularly surprised to hear this from Jay Mayer, but I was really curious what James Pearson would say if I asked him, like, is there something at least challenging to our norms of democracy about having billionaires with particular preferences having this kind of influence over the ideas that govern us? Basically, has most of your career been spent doing an undemocratic thing? James was a really good sport about it, though. Yeah, that's a very good question. Are these legitimate instruments for influencing thought in a democratic society? These vast pockets of wealth, unaccountable to anybody, are going to exercise great influence in our society, and that's not right. James also argues that there was money coming from the left as well as the right, and so the right had to fight back somehow. There's a lot of debate to be had about whether the left or right gets more money overall. There's a recent book that tried to add it all up and found that billionaires overall are kind of conservative and that they donate their money accordingly. But the fundamental question is, should anyone, left or right, have this kind of power just because they're rich? That's a a modern development in American politics. If you ask me, is it a healthy development? I'd probably say no, the whole thing. If I could just redesign it from scratch, I probably would not include it. But I don't have those powers. America is supposed to be all about people freely arguing for their vision of the world in this big, raucous, robust debate. But the rules of the debate aren't fair. Not everyone gets to enter. You have to be really rich to play at a high level. So it falls to rich liberals like Tom Steyer and rich conservatives like John Olin to wage that fight. 
Sometimes they're fighting to protect their money, to stop people from regulating the places it came from, to stop courts from ruling against their businesses. But their motives don't need to be narrowly self-serving to be troubling. John Olin's foundation wasn't geared toward making the Olin Corporation money, but it was geared toward spreading John Olin's vision, even though most Americans probably don't share that vision. This isn't just a problem with explicitly political foundations like Olin. Next time on Future Perfect, we'll talk about how supposedly humanitarian work in poor countries can raise similar issues. And there are a few better illustrations than the experience of the Ford Foundation in India. I would say that the time of sterilization is is something that is remembered as a, a sad and scary time. That's next time on Future Perfect. Future Perfect is produced and co-reported by Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger, and we're mixed by Jared Paul. Our fact-checking was by Laura Bullard. Our music is by APM, Noam Hassenfeld, and Poddington Bear. Suresh Naidu, Amanda Hollis-Bruski, and Alice O'Connor were super generous with their time this episode. Thank you to them, and we're going to have Q&As with Suresh and Amanda on the site. Thanks also to Steve Tellis, whose book on all this is great, and to Ben Soskis, who also took the time to talk us through ideas. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com future perfect. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.